I'm going to be very candid with you. We are living in a computer program reality. Welcome everyone to Simulation Nation, your portal to all things virtual. I'm your host, Johnny Android, and I'm here to keep you informed about all that's happening in the metaverse. We record our episodes live in Allspace almost every week, and you can join us for free, even if you don't have a VR headset. Yes, it's true. Just log into Allspace from your laptop or PC, join our event, and teleport in to offer your opinion, question, or whatever else. Today we have another episode of Futurosity's Flicks and Picks. This time, the film Gamer follows a death row prisoner whose body is the avatar for a player of a first-person shooter, has to navigate through a war zone to survive and overcome a bigger conspiracy. So here to help us navigate in avatar form is the most futuristic dude in all the metaverse, Futurosity. Yay! Thank you for inviting me over again. I love it. This is going to be a fun one. We gotta invite you for your own show, Futurosity. This is. Uh, this I appreciate. Is what would the flicks and picks be without the Futurosity? It wouldn't work. <laughs> well, uh, I so. just love these moments to get together. I mean, it's a chance for us to talk about how technology influences pop culture and also how it works in reverse. And that's what this whole episode's about. We see the future in media, and the media informs it as well. So it's just a fun to see these connections and also revisiting movies from only from a decade or two ago and seeing how much of those concepts are in regular day-to-day -day life. Yeah, how much has changed, how much they got wrong, how many, how much they got right. It's all, I, I love looking at it as well. Um, so yeah, happy to, happy to do it and happy to be here and, and happy, I should, happy to be a guest on your show, Futurosity. I have to guess. <laughs> um, so I, I will say I'm wearing uh, some new duds today. This is the first time ever I'm wearing these new duds uh, for your licks and picks here. And uh, those of you seeing on the YouTube stream uh, at the Simulation Nation, this is actually a retired community helper outfit. So in Elf Space, they've been making a lot of changes. And I used to be a community helper. The way that you became a community helper is you just spend a certain amount of time at all space and you, you throw a lot of events. And if you help out and you moderate other people's events, they sort of give you this um, green heart over your logo uh, when your name pops up. Uh, they've retired all of that. I think, I don't know the, the true reason why they retired it. I think it's probably because they're trying to be careful with um, being, there's a lot of issues with sort of, I don't know, harassment in the metaverse and things like no. that. They, you know, a Microsoft who owns Altspace wants to, I think, make sure that people don't think I am an employee of Microsoft, an employee of Altspace. So they want to make sure that that's all separate. So it's a little sad, but uh, some wonderful people made these new outfits. This one is made by Ryu, who has made all my other wardrobe. Yeah. And, and he, yeah, he gave it to um, a lot of people who were community helpers. He kind of just uh, donated it to us. And so I'm happy to wear it today. And Ryu, if you're watching out there, thank you so much. That's awesome. No, I love that. Yeah. It's like it's still expanding that community, you know, still acknowledging all the work people have done to make, you know, also a more positive VR community. I have to say it's been a wonderful experience thus far. Totally. I, you know, I, I do have to admit, though, if you walk or if I was walking around the the, uh, the spaces uh, that were more communal spaces, people saw that I was a community helper and they would ask me technical questions. And I'd be like, uh, <laughs> that's that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it's a better maybe it's better this way. Uh, in any case, <laughs> uh, we have a movie to talk about today. Uh, it is the movie Gamer. And as always, we start with overall thoughts. 
So why don't you start, uh, Futurosity? What did you think of watching Gamer? And had you seen it before? And how many, how long ago had you seen it? Well, it's been a couple of years since I've seen Gamer because I'm a fan of the directors. Um, they originally directed Crank and Crank 2. Um, it's um, Neville Dean and Taylor. They're a writer-director combo that collaborate for a couple of years now. I mean, they've done about like at least eight big features I could think of. So when, I, when 2009, when this came out, I remember, oh, yeah, I remember that Crank movie. It felt like a video game. Had that same video game aesthetic, you know, game over, insert coin, like a lot of the concepts I remember from arcade gaming they had in that film. So in 2009 rolled around, I'm like, yeah, I love Gerard Butler. I remember 300, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I walked into the theater and had a, a time, you know, I wouldn't say it was the greatest cinematic experience. But I still had fun. You know, it, gamer definitely fits that mold of, Hey, you know, it's in and out. It's a short movie gets its point across. There's some explosions, there's some bad guys and, you know, a little bit of social commentary sprinkled in overall. It, I'll get more detail later, but it was all right the first time I saw it. But revisiting it this time around, I found a little more enjoyment because, you know, now that I know what we have today, you know, I know what gamer culture has evolved into. I understand how, you know, use the avatars and VR landscapes has changed in the last, you know, 13 years or so. So I, I appreciate it on a different level now. So I'd love mm. to get more detail about it. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Yeah, no, you know, for me, it's, I, you could tell just by looking at it what era it came from. And I feel like it came from this era where Tony Scott was doing this kind of super hyperkinetic editing and every shot was a zoom in and a zoom out. It was like the domino era, right? It was like the 2000, 2010 era. And I feel like these guys were kind of emulating that style that came out. And, and, and that style, um glad it's got away because it's just so, it's sort of like, just like a tired on the eyes and tired to watch. And I always found that they focused a little bit more on the um, whiz-bang shots and the action sequences than they did the character. They almost, they jumped too quickly through the character in, in movies like Domino and um, who else was in that era of Tony Scott? I think they did Deja Vu, although that's not quite the same. Yes. I think that's a better quality film. But uh, in that sort of uh, sphere, uh, uh, and this one kind of followed into, into that category. But it just... I think that there's a lot of really interesting ideas in here. I was a little frustrated that uh, those ideas weren't expressed in a way that was either believable or was emotionally connecting to me or um, was allowing moments to linger as opposed to just jumping from one to the next to the next. And I have to admit that uh, there's some great actors in here. I think Gerald Butler is the most grounded of the bunch. Uh, but Michael C. Hall, who I typically love, was so over the top that I just it was like it was so it was a little cringe for me so it's like so sad that Michael C. Hall gave this cringe performance the, another you know the only other thing that, that really graded on me a little bit where it, it felt a little bit exploitative uh from a um there's a lot of sexual sort of exploitation and I get I get it we'll get into why there is all that stuff and they have reasons in the world why those things exist I still do feel like, though, that the filmmakers are like, all right, now we get to exploit because the story says we could exploit. And by the way, they came up with the story as well, right? So it's like they kind of built it in there. So there was a, some of those elements I don't think is aged as well for me that um, like I don't think that they would have such booty shots uh, as, as they did, <laughs> you know, gratuitous booty shots as they do today. And 
Um, some of those elements uh, kind of graded on me, but 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 overall, you know, I, yeah, I I had a little trouble overall with some of it. So I don't know. We, we maybe we'll take opposite sides on this one. Let's see. But, no, um, I agree. Some things didn't age as well. We definitely feel the 2009-ness, but it doesn't feel like it was made in 2009. It feels like it came out almost 10 years earlier in many ways, like just how it kind of reflected, unquote, you know, assumed gamer culture, you know, the stereotypical gamer culture. It felt like late 90s versus, you know, early, you know, you know 21st century. So that's, that's another funny part about it. Yeah. And we should mention also that virtual reality does it really exist? They they don't wear virtual headsets in this world. They watch computer monitors. They can move uh, their hands with, I guess, joysticks or something. But uh, I, but I you know I kind of feel like though that was a choice where they were doing that because they wanted us to see the eyes of the people on the outside uh, as opposed to covering over their faces. There was another I think it was like a there was another sh- a movie that did that, and it was clearly just a aesthetic choice as opposed to a not understanding the technology choice so I, i'll have to think of what that if hopefully i can come up with it as we go along i could um, definitely see that i mean overall i mean the technology featured visually it, it looked like it was just like you know some 90s desktop ibm computers and a bunch of randomly sized monitors versus you know this neural interface that we're expecting i mean even even you know some of the earlier vr work we've seen from the early 90s at least had some kind of tangible technology you know, like 13th right. floor for example you know at least they right. gave us something so it's like hey let's explain this world this is the machine that does it in this case, we had the nanos, the nanobots. Remember, nanotechnology was a big thing, you know, a decade and a half ago. Everything in sci-fi was nano this, nano that. So that way you could explain everything without, quote unquote, showing it. It's a nanobite. You can't see it. <laughs> right, right, right. Kind of oh, a well, cheat. That totally makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. Um, okay, cool. Well, let's, let's dive into the plot here. Uh, do you, as usual, do you want to give your, the plot summary? Oh, sure. Well, this one, those you throw a rock into the future kind of movie. So it's like 15 minutes into the future. It's supposed to be around 2034. You know, um, you have our main character of the inventor, you know, Ken Castle. He's this, you know, eccentric, foghorn, leghorn-esque, accented southern billionaire who essentially creates nanotechnology that can replace portions of the brain slowly but surely bit by bit, essentially doesn't destroy your brain, actually makes your brain even more resilient and stronger. Think of it as a life extension technology, but ultimately it becomes abused for entertainment purposes. Essentially, they make a game called Society, which is almost like The Sims. Uh, Imagine The Sims or, you know, know, Second Life from back in the day. You know, essentially you control a human-based avatar and you're able to interact and, you know, wear different clothes and have, you know, different kinds of, you know, sexually gratifying experiences and more. Essentially, it's a lusty version of The Sims and you control real people who actually get paid. But that same technology ends up being used for a game called Slayers, in which you actually control human beings once again. But this time they're death row inmates. And these death row inmates sign an agreement in which if they win 30 games or at least survive 30 games, they'll get released. So we live in a strange world in this movie where essentially um, there's no like no moral backbone, essentially, in a society. You know, a 17-year-old boy can control a character named Cable, which is Gerard Butler's main character, and have that character kill real-life people and through the, you know, controlling it through this nanobot technology. So when you see this, you kind of realize, hey, well, 
you have Gerard Butler. He's a man who believes he's innocent of these crimes, even though he's on death row and he signed up and he's on his 27th win within the game of Slayers. So he's almost close to freedom. After we get a little bit closer to his freedom, we realize there's these you know, underground groups, this group called the humans, who kind of hack into broadcast and you know, try to spread this message of, hey, humanity is going to be enslaved a second time over due to this technology. Essentially, Michael C. Hall's character, you know, Ken Castle, is going to use this technology for evil purposes. And essentially, you know, he points a mirror back on society, tells society, this is disgusting. These are real people. These aren't giblets and little pieces. These are human beings getting exploded. And even worse, they have NPC characters within the Slayer game who essentially, you know, they'll be mopping floors or passing out the virtual currency, but they have no control over the situation. Those people, if they survive even a single game, they get out. So obviously, you know that there's going to be a high rate of deaths for all participants. Well, over time, you realize, hey, this actual you know, system is designed to be expanded. You know, Michael C. Hall's character essentially wants to take over the world by taking over other people's brains. His use of the technology actually afforded him 98% of his brain matter has been replaced with his nanobots. So essentially, his whole evil plan is to make it airborne and take over more minds. Essentially, his brain um, you know, can transmit while others can receive instructions. So we see Gerard Butler's character gain control of his own body you know, by making a deal with this young gamer kid named Simon. And essentially, using a couple hacks and a little bit of technology, he eventually escapes and tries to bring his family back together. His wife, who works in the society game, essentially being you know, molested and used by you know, some very creepy gamers. And also his own daughter, who's been adopted off to allegedly some rich person. We'll get into more detail about that little plot twist. But essentially, mm-hmm. it's just a, a movie about him trying to reconnect his family, improve his innocence. At the same time, the humans group is also trying to destroy the corporation. So there's two different levels of goals. You know, Gerard Butler's character has a personal goal. Then the humans have the wider goal to try to save the planet. And this evil guy wants to take over everyone's minds. So it's a sci-fi ride within that world. And, you know, we're going to visit a couple more things about in just a moment. But that's kind of the gist that we have there. Yeah. And, you know, with the way you describe it, it sounds so great. I don't know. Maybe you're <laughs> the spokesperson for this movie. I'm like, I want to go watch that movie. And I, I do feel like you, it was very accurate portrayal of the movie. I guess it, it made me question as you're talking about it, like, what was it that just didn't catch me the right way? And I, I feel like there's a few things. I think the first is that um, plot at the beginning is is obscure. We don't know what the plot is, right? So dumped into uh, Gerard Butler's battleground, we have no uh, connection to this character. We don't know what he wants or what he's after, what his mission is. We don't know why he's doing it. We don't have any emotional content to his character. And so for the so the first you know five or ten minutes of the movie, it's just this wham bam shoot 'em up. These hyperkinetic visuals. Um, and so uh, I was a little bit like, okay, well I got this. After about two minutes, now what what are we doing here? And then we jump to uh, the um, Michael Hall character, and he's so like I mentioned before, so over the top. That I was like, oh man, I don't know. And the question is like, <laughs> like I, I think that if they, I think that they were trying to make an a, a, a statement about society, but it didn't come across. Like I could, they didn't give enough understanding of what kind of a world would do this to its people, or like. 
the the inmates, I, you know, the death row inmates, like, why would the government allow them to be used? Like, because the world that they showed wasn't dystopic. Like, so it, it always reminded me of like Running Man a little bit. And, and, and in return, Running Man, I think, became Hunger Games. But those were both dystopias, right? They took place in a world that had fallen apart. And this is how people got their entertainment. In, in this example, they took away that key element, which is the world that we know today still exists, but this is just layered on top of it. But then I'm like, I don't believe that because I don't believe that that would ever happen. So then I, I'm, I'm, I'm falling out with, I'm not connecting emotionally with Gerald Butler's character. I'm falling out with the, the, um, the mythology of how this is happening. And I understand that you need to take um, sort of like a leap of, of faith into a, an other world that's just... Uh, not necessarily connected to our own. It's maybe it's a metaphor, or maybe it's a it's supposed to be, um, you know, a more uh, I guess elaborated version where it's like more dramatic and more uh, over the top in our world. And I get that movies can do that, uh, but for my money, I like something that gives me a little more grounding so I can relate to it. And I didn't feel like I can relate to this movie in that way. I think that the plot was the thing that started with that. I don't know. Did you did you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I agree with you. Uh, in many ways, they did the classic sci-fi cheat. You start off with a little montage, you know, a couple of newspaper articles and magazine articles flying on the screen, and then a quick interview of the main bad guy describing his technology and essentially winking at his evil plan. You know, essentially, you start off with, you know, Ken Castle saying, don't worry, everyone, I'm not the bad guy, even though it's so obvious that he's the bad guy. So in many ways, it's a cheat. I mean, the surrogates did the similar thing. You know, they say, hey, this is a future in which everyone controls these surrogate robots. Here's a quick montage of news articles to try to set it up the world. I think the best use of that, I think, would be RoboCop, where they use commercials to kind of set the tone and set the rules of the future. You know, but that's, you know, that's a master craftsman, you know, in Paul Verhoeven's hands. He used commercials to kind of show this reality of this new world. But unfortunately, in this film, it felt like they were just, you know, just throwing information at us. We were reading the wiki of what happened in the last 10 years of this world versus having a more visceral experience that connects us and makes us say, hey, what about society would devolve to the point where a 17 year old kid would have 650 million pay-per-view viewers to watch right. a, a young kid kill real people? They didn't give us any of that. That was my main issue. Yeah. And then I think also, you know, you can always tell when you watch a movie, like, what is the what is the real motivation behind what the director is doing? Do they focus more on performance? Do they focus more on special effects? Do they focus on more on mythology? So almost I could tell right off the bat that these filmmakers we're focusing on the cinematography, right? So it felt like, and, and then I looked at their uh, IMDb, and it turns out that they were both a cinematographers before this, or at least one, one of them was, right? So clearly, they're uh, the visuals, the aesthetic, the blood and guts, the nudity, uh, the the sort of all the the fluffy visual stuff was really what they were excited about as filmmakers because they did that really, really well, right? Like it, it just, it, it does it does look great and it does, uh, uh, every shot is like gorgeous and very complicated cinematography. Um, but but then what lacks is is what we're talking about, which is the content. And you end up getting, you know, a, a sort of, uh, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like food without any nutritional value. 
<laughs> right? Yes. It's like it's like it's like junk food or something. Like it tastes great, and it's like you know, and then in the moment, I'm like, wow, this is like really tasty stuff. But then afterwards, you have like a stomach ache. You're like, oh god, why did I? Do this? <laughs> oh, it's so true. And upon repeat viewings, you see the flaws even more. I mean, the game itself. There was no way to really understand just the how the game worked. You know, it's like I understand there's a goal, there's checkpoints. I mean, I've watched you know Twitch streams of first-person shooters, and I can follow the action and know, hey, this is the next old post. This is where you have to go. In this game, it was just utter chaos. I'm like, well, what's the goal? Where's the checkpoint? You know, the Simon kid is supposed to be the greatest gamer ever. You know, controlling a real human being, he has no controllers. Just uses hand gestures, and I'm assuming the nanotechnology to kind of give him a little edge. But once again, it still felt like a cheat. You know, I didn't feel like there was a real connection between the characters or even their motivations. Just felt like we're doing this for the sake of doing it versus having like a deeper motivation other than just you know basic revenge story. And even if they had focused a little bit more on the performance and bringing it a little bit down to earth, uh, then we could have at least like, uh, uh, oh, there's real people here. But, um, it was it was it was sort of difficult to do that. Um, I, I kind of want to talk about the end. Did you have anything in the middle you wanted to mention before I dive into the end? Well, eh, the middle, I mean, it, it served its purpose. I mean, essentially, the middle section of the movie how to progress things forward. You kind of get a little twist here and there. You learn a little bit more about the world, but in many ways, they kind of wasted all the new characters we were introduced to. Um, you know, the whole underground humans organization that was led by Ludacris, which very much reminded me of surrogates. I mean, there is a certain right. you know, uh, repeated trope of, you know, um, you know, African-American man who's little, he has a boisterous voice appearing mm. on television screens through hackers and you know running some kind of underground organization it did tap into some tropes and you know they kind of had like a little wink wink racial humor here and there going to be edgy so it very much felt like you know a late you know 90s kind of film mm-hmm. when it came to the you know attempts at edginess you know what i mean it was kind of this wink wink hey this is leet speak this is how gamers sound and i'm like i don't think any gamers sound like this <laughs> So it's kind of an assumption, you know, that didn't really work out well. Right. And, you know, it's too bad Terry Crews. I love Terry Crews so much, but his performance was like oh, uh, super over the top as well. And he's doing some dance, all this stuff. Um, okay. But the, <laughs> <laughs> the ending though, um, so the thing that, uh, the thing about the ending is like, it just felt like, okay, we're headed into act three. Now what we have to do is have the villain who already has the world in the palm of his hand. He's worth billions of dollars. He gets anything his his heart could ever desire, but he's going to throw it all the way for a megalomaniac plan to rule the world and take over people's brains. And it's like, it's just, it, it's too much of a cookie cutter, two-dimensional bad guy who his plan's not motivated in my mind to anything real because he's already got, he's already won the world. Like, like if you have billions of dollars, what else do you need? Why not just like play it cool? <laughs> like you could take over people's brains if you wanted to, but like play it cool and you could do whatever you want in all the world. But no, like he's gotta like you know have it all, and he's gotta just I don't know what's he, what what more is he gonna gain by by having brainwashed everybody on Earth? Like what? Like it just feels like a, 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 you know a, a mustache twirling villain. Like ha ha ha! Now I will rule the world. And it's like I don't know. I I, I you know they needed more motivation there for me. 
you need motivation for the villain, you know, need some kind of traumatic experience that informs their decisions later. And that's how a good villain works. But this guy just seems like, okay, he was an overnight success. He made more money than Bill Gates in just one day. He had the easy road. It's like he did a cheat code in life and just kind of jumped ahead to be a billionaire. So I'm like, well, what adversity did he experience how to give him such bitter feelings that he needs to control millions of people? They didn't give us any of that. So that's one disappointment where I see the ending. I'm like, why? Why do you have to take over the world? I mean, a smaller focused story that's about him getting, you know, trying to hide information about the killing of, you know, the military man, you know, Gerard Butler's best friend in the film. Like that seems like, hey, that's motivation. You want to hide evidence of a crime while you're testing out the nanotechnology. That's a good motivation. But to just jump to not only am I going to control you, your family, your daughter, et cetera, I'm also going to take over the world. It was unnecessary. It was just this extra, you know, mustache twirling, mega maniacal, cartoonish thing that wasn't necessary. Yeah. That's a, that's a great segue to characters. So let's, let's, I guess, first we could start with talking about Tillman, uh, who, you know, is the, is the main character. And, you know, he starts off extremely two-dimensionally. And, you know, uh, fortunately, he does... Do de- once his backstory unravels slowly, we do get a little more depth to him. He's really the only character I feel like that we do get a little depth to. Um, and so you, you sort of said it, like, you discover the reason why he's in prison is that he murdered his, his uh, partner, his best friend. And then, uh, you know, he's put on death row. And then we understand that he's got to get out because his wife is basically being prostituted uh, on this other society game. And he has a, a daughter and all this kind of stuff. So he does have good motivations in the end. I just wish that they got us on board with that sooner. They, the way that they did it is they, they peppered it into the act two, but we are into this movie for 30 minutes minimum before any of this stuff starts to come out. It's like I had 30 minutes to fall out of the movie because I didn't fall in love with the main character and I wasn't along for his emotional journey until later. And I think that's a little bit of a mistake here where you want to... Um, I think you want to give us clues into the plot and the mythology later on, but I think you want to give us an emotionally concrete story right at the beginning so that we can jump on board uh, with that. I don't know. Any oh, I agree. So many, yeah. Well, I think that was my main issue. Um, essentially, you know, Tillman, also called Cable within the game, essentially you couldn't see the driving force behind him. Because I understand the boy Simon, 17-year-old gamer that controls his body, there's still that delay. You know, so there's that, you know, there's about 30 seconds or, you know, who knows how many seconds delay in between an action within the game and the real world. So that ping, I thought they were setting that up for some kind of huge plot point. They barely did. Like that delay in between, you know, player and character. So my main issue was, okay, so he has a few moments, like, you know, like a split second to make decisions on his own while the main gamer controls his body. But we never really understood, okay, what makes him more special? You know, everyone else is playing a game. Why is he the one that's able to react faster within that, you know, few moments of, you know, within the game? So essentially, I didn't feel like he was motivated by any efforts. He's just, he's in the game, he's stuck, he's living his life. And then essentially, you know, some, you know, a guard slips him a photo of his daughter and asks for a signature. And essentially that kind of propels the story forward a bit, but that was very late, you know, like this underground person trying to get him involved with the humans. It, it came up, you know, way too late. They should have brought that up at the beginning where he's sitting there crying over his daughter and, you know, plotting revenge, you know, trying to figure out his history and why he's in jail. 
everything came late. I mean, even the reason why I was in jail was way too late in the movie when they finally revealed the actual killing that occurred and how he was under control. They're testing out this product with, you know, nanobots within the brain. So once again, the stuff we needed came way too late. I almost felt like maybe they edited a lot of the first act out. Um, it felt like it was missing 10 minutes that we really needed. He's like, why not show his arrest? You know, why not show like his first couple weeks in jail? Like they kind of missed all that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when we were talking about the ending and talking about this, it, it reminds me a lot of Minority Report, actually. Did right? Minority Report, the, the, the head villain, uh, if you haven't seen it, the twist coming here, but the, the head villain, um, <laughs> he sort of, uh, he did frames or, or he was, he caused a murder to happen and then he put the memories into the memory banks of these creatures of the, um, the, the ones that are, what are they called? The uh, oracles or whatever. And then um, he's able, the reason that he wants to do that is because he wants his pre-crime system to take over America. And once he succeeds at that sort of bureaucratic political goal, that's all he wants. But he did one crime back at the beginning to make that happen. And he's got to stop anyone who could figure out what that one crime is. And so that for me is a great motivation. And it also has big stakes. The other thing with the main character, Tom Cruise's character is trapped in this uh, future where um, he, we like literally the second scene that we meet him, he goes home and he puts on a holographic images of his family. And we understand that his family's dead. He's taking drugs to deal with the emotional pain. And it just, it's like very early on in the story, it sets up uh, something that's very relatable and we understand the character's motiv motivation. So that's what that's the difference between a Steven Spielberg being able to know over 50 years of filmmaking and so many <laughs> classic movies, how to set up a character and how to get us on board uh, versus uh, some cinematographers who had, you know, maybe uh, a great action, straight up action movie with Crank. I still hadn't mastered the uh, the skills of storytelling, if I could say if I could say that. Yeah. Not so true. Even the side characters, you know, like John Leguizamo's character, you know, he's another inmate. He's involved with the game, but unfortunately with him, he's more NPC, so he'll be you know, sweeping the floors and doing non-action related roles. So for me, I'm like, well, what purpose does he serve? You know, he's a character who is there just to give us information. You know, he's there to be our Know, expositional character to say, hey, this is how things work in the prison. But when you think about it, Gerard Butler's character, Tillman, he should know almost everything that the character tells him at this point, which I always find funny in movies where mm -hmm. you realize this character should have this knowledge by this point because he's been in the game for you know 27 games by now. Why is John Leguizamo's character filling in the blanks? You know what I mean? <laughs> I always notice that in movies where you realize they're telling the audience this. They're not telling the character this information and that's what pulls me out instantly because when john leguizamo's character dies it's like oh oh no i guess meanwhile let's move on to the next plot point i mean he literally you know it's just like oh no no tear shed just he's just there as a plot device i wonder if maybe that relationship was cut out as well because it didn't really establish a relationship like why would gerard butler even care most of it is okay. don't talk shut up we shouldn't talk you know <laughs> and then suddenly yeah. oh let me listen to everything you have to say only something was missing. Right. right. One character that I thought was maybe uh, counter to the cliche of what you think they would be was the Kyra Cedric character. Because she's sort of, at the beginning, you think she's this superficial uh, news queen or sort of a shock 
uh, uh, like it, back then it would have been like Jerry Springer or not quite Jerry Springer, <laughs> but she was kind of like a Raldo Rivera or something where she was like sensationalizing news and was getting these interviews um, with uh, the, the uh, Philip, um, uh, what's his name? The uh, Michael C. Hall character, uh, Asshole. Uh, but then, of course, we <laughs> discover that she uh, she takes a turn, right? And she's actually got death and cares about uh, the world, right? And she sort of helps out the humans. And it turns out that she's not as superficial and sensationalistic as we first thought. That was maybe one character that was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, well, everything that's else. That's the kind issue. Of, yeah. It's just amazing actors. You know, I mean, there's a great cast yeah. in this. But unfortunately, yeah. they weren't given the material to shine. Because I mean, Kira Sedgwick, I mean, I love her as an actress, and I was waiting for yeah. that moment to give it. Unfortunately, it didn't really let her. You know, they, she was within the confines of what the script allowed her to do. Yeah. And I really want to find out from Michael C. Hall who told him to do this insane performance the way he did, and if he regrets it, I wonder. Because <laughs> he's, he's proven to be such a great actor and character actor after this. Uh, it's a shame that it didn't, it didn't quite come across. Um, in any case, all right. So what, <laughs> what else we got here? We got the point. So the point here of this story, I think you sort of summarized it at the beginning very well. Did you want to, to, to elaborate on that? What you think that they're trying to say here? Well, essentially, they're talking about just the, the lack of civility in society. There's a lot of moments where you realize everyone uses coarse language you know, at work, you know, outside, online. Everyone's kind of at the amplified darkness in a way you, you notice a lot of the jokes are you know on the edge of oh you can't say that at work the boss said that to the you know kira cedric's character like, there are a lot of moments where it's like kind of cringeworthy dialogue to tell you hey even the news itself you know they're smoking cigarettes and cursing on the news you know it's just trying to remind right. us that this is a society that has given up civility and has gone 100 percent into just gross commercialism um, but the thing is, I think the main point is we give up our humanity for money in many cases. I mean, there were people, the slayers, they did volunteer into this disgusting product. And the same thing as the people in society. The society itself is that you could buy anyone with enough money. And even if it's the most menial, disturbing, and depressing job, there's always someone out there who's going to do it. So it did feel like there's this permanent underclass of people, you know, that are you know, can afford to exist. And there's always going to be the users, you know, because you notice all the users were usually rich because I mean, look at the technology they're using. The Simon kid, he, you know, refused to take 50 million euros to have someone else play his character. Like, unless like, you know, the euro dropped to like, you know, one cent each, that's a lot of money to give up. So they're trying to bring up the fact that, Hey, there's this control group of rich people that control the poor. And essentially it's, Kind of no different than how we live today. You know, people are forced into menial jobs. They work at the most basic level, and you know, people at the top are bringing in the most money and the highest percentage of income. So I think they try to get that point across, but right. you kind of have to do a little digging on your own. You kind of have to yeah. fill in the blanks and give it a deeper meaning. But overall, I thought that's what they're going for. Yeah, yeah. I think that the other thing is also, which um, and this is sort of prescient in a sense, is like tech bros take it over the world i think that that has sort of like come true where you've got these silicon valley uh tech bros who kind of create these billion dollar uh, um, technologies who are in a sense uh controlling how we get information what information we're getting they're curating data so 
Facebook or slash Meta has obviously in the last decade had a real problem, or I guess last eight, six to eight years has had a real problem with people thinking that they are giving, feeding us misinformation and then not knowing that Russian, uh, Russians are maybe putting misinformation uh, to the American public, but they want to get those dollars for the ad revenue. So they're not like uh, stopping those voices. And then you know, you've got Twitter that is, there's, they're now, it started off as a free speech platform and now it's being curated by certain tech bros on the board who are saying, you know, who, sh who should and who shouldn't speak. So it does feel like that was a bit ahead of its time in a sense where it is this technology that is uh, taking over our lives and is kind of controlling us in a sense, like this is sort of taking it 10 times bigger, which a good, good sci-fi movie should do, should take a little kernel of a problem in today's world and extrapolate it out into the future. It's like, if this kernel grows into a mighty oak, what will the world look like? And um, I do think that that, uh, that came across. You know, I, I, I feel like uh, as we talk about it, I, I feel like in the hands of different, different director, this could have been uh, something that I really enjoyed, I think. Uh, I, I think um, it, it was the over-the-top stuff and the over-the-top visuals and the exploitative shots and all of that that kind of just uh, got, got me down uh, and didn't um, give as much credence to the story as maybe I could. But yeah, it's interesting. But I think those yeah, are there's the a two built -in... points. Oh, um, I think there's also like a built-in conflict of interest. I kept bringing it up as well. And when you see technology companies that you know, they own a huge stake in media companies as well, or they'll advertise on the same media that's supposed to be reporting about them, just like, you know, Kira Sedgwick's show, you know, it's sponsored by Slayers. And she's supposed to be this hard-hitting right. reporter, but at the same time, the money that's funding the program itself is bad guy's money. So I, I do like that they brought up that as well. I mean, because you see that all the time. You watch the news. See a slight mention of a quote unquote evil corporation, and then 10 minutes later, it's a commercial for their product. And there's no disclaimer, anything telling you, hey, by the way, we have a financial relationship with this company. So I did like there was little sprinkles of that, you know, it's like, hey, the future, you know, getting the message out and how corporations can control the message at multiple levels. I did like that. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm just thinking about these uh, these directors. I'm trying to think of what they've done since this. Do you know what they've ah. done since Gamer? I'm, I'm taking a look at They did here. the so Ghost did, Riders. The Ghost Rider and the Vatican. Nicholas Cage. Was, yeah. That's pretty much it, though. They kind of have petered out as, as directors. And, you know, it's, it's like it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, OK, have you seen Top Gun Maverick? Not yet. It's on my list. Oh. oh, man, you got to see. It's like it's the best. It's, so it's good. that good. It's it's that good. It's like for me, it's like it's uh, it's on the top of the Mount Everest of romance movies. It's like the <laughs> ultimate romance movie. Right. Uh, and it's so it got so emotional for me. I was like weeping like a child in the theater. Like I was just like, this is a great. It's oh, a great movie. but the thing is, it made me think because we covered Tron Legacy, and that was done by the same director, John Krasinski. I think that's his name, right? And the uh, problem yeah. I, I had with Tron Legacy was that the visuals were so incredible, but the emotional, again, emotional story wasn't there. Characters weren't there. The mythology was a little convoluted. Well, Top Gun Maverick gives you hope that these directors can take those sort of lessons to heart, and they can better their craft 
and they can come out with an incredible movie. So where Tron Legacy was a, a, a mediocre movie for me with incredible visuals, Top Gun Maverick is a movie with incredible visuals, incredible emotional impact, uh, incredible performance. They just did, they did everything right. They did everything right. So, um, it, it, you know, it, it, if you give, sometimes if you give directors another chance, they're able to, to pull off a miracle. And, and you got to watch Top Gun Maverick because it's, it's awesome. I love it. Ooh, now I'm yeah. definitely going to have to see it this weekend. <laughs> yeah, it's worth it. It's worth seeing on the big screen, too, because of all those jet fighting uh, shots. And it's just really uh, a big screen visual kind of movie. But it also has the intimacy to it as well. So yeah, um, you need heart. Yeah, you need heart. Exactly. You could try, like, I think this movie tried to fabricate heart. Um, I, I, I guess it just land for me just because we, we never saw him with his wife. I don't think we never saw him with his daughter. It's not like, like we were talking about, like Minority Report, we're getting holographic images and we're, we're seeing these, uh, these things unfold. I know some people are against flashbacks. I personally have not. How do you feel about flashbacks? Well, I go back and forth. I, I prefer linear filmmaking. You know, I, I show us the couple, like the first five minutes, show us a little bit of the past versus having, you know, a character pick up a liquor bottle and stares at the label. Then we dissolve to the past. You know, a lot of times you have those tropes where you have to have like a reason to kind of flash backwards. Um, I, I kind of let the Pixar approach. It's like, hey, the story, this is the story. We're going to go in, you know, linear order. We will show you a little bit of the past. You know, or maybe have characters reflect on the past within the dialogue that feels natural. You know, it's like they could yeah. be looking through family photos, longing. I mean, literally, we just saw like a folded up photo of the family. And that was it for a long period of time. And the daughter herself was essentially a prop. Uh, did she even say anything? I don't remember you say uttering a word um, from what I remember in the movie. So right. that's the thing. It's like you can't connect with someone if they're essentially just uses a, you know, a prop to pass around. You know, oh, this child is kidnapped. I understand it's a child, but I mean, why not, you know, give us a little bit more, show us her personality. Why this man is about to risk his life to save these people. They didn't give us any of that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, all right. So then uh, we usually do a little bit of segment on the tech. So uh, the tech is kind of, uh, we sort of talked about it, these nano robots in the brains, which um, totally, you know, I mean, I think that that's something that, uh, yeah, it was used a lot 10 years ago, but I, th I think it's still relevant today. And I think it's still a legitimate thing. I mean, we've got, you know, um, you know, Elon Musk working on neural nets to put in our brain. And the step after that is you're going to have nanobots in your blood that's going to tell you, you, know, um, you know, if your body's working, if you've got too much cholesterol or whatever. So I do believe that that's still a technology that, that I, I find believable. Um, and the fact that they, they put it in people's brains, uh, and we don't have to see the tech. I totally get that. It, it makes sense to me. Um, so I think that's the big technological uh, leap of this movie, right? That's sort of, sort of like the one thing that they make more advanced and more futuristic. And that's sort of the setting for everything. Well, just to humanize things, I'm still thinking about just some, you know, the overall questions of the technology. You know, when you talk about nanotechnology and using it to have what they call parallel reality. You know, controlling real people in real environments, quote unquote, virtually. Um, it's a concept that I'm glad they brought up, but I haven't seen it used um, that much. I mean, I, I keep thinking of um, the, the use of an avatar or a surrogate in, um, remember, um, what was it? Um, um, ah, I can't remember. Um, Super Dave Osborne's character, um, Arrested Development. 
well, uh, Arrested Development, the TV show, had a uh, concept of, you know, essentially a surrogate walking around with a video camera and essentially a test to represent a person from another spot of the world. And I uh, kind of wish that this parallel reality of the youth in fiction more because it is a fascinating concept of not necessarily controlling another person but using a physical presence of someone else as your avatar you know either on screen or via use of camera um so i wish that more fiction could have delved into that concept because it is a cool mm. sci-fi concept you know the real mm. world itself becoming virtual using you know real people i this is one of the few movies i've done in and it seems like it would have been an interesting trend to tap into for future movies yeah, so it's called a parallel reality because um, there's like the real world is the game board or what? why is it? Yeah, exactly. It? Yeah. So real world, you know, controlling the real world. So right, it's, right, it's right. one of those it's a sci-fi concept where I'm like, wow, better hands, you know, with a little more you know, heart to the character story. Concept can be very cool and fascinating and also just terrifying. But unfortunately, yeah. they really didn't go there. Would you put Avatar in that category? It's almost in that category. Yeah, in a way, it's like you're you're doing VR in space, essentially. In an, you know, or, controlling in an organic, a, yeah, in an organic creature. Hmm. Interesting. Um, cool. All right. Uh, well, here we go. Wow! 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 It's wow score time. <laughs> uh, Ted Wow's is the greatest movie ever. Sure, Wow's. What the hell did I just watch? Who wants to go first? You want to go first? <laughs> oh, I think you kind of know where Mike's score is going to be. Uh, so why not? I would give this about four and a half wows. And I say, oh, wow, wow, I'm being I'm being nice. You no, know, four and a half wows, because I, if you think about the movie afterwards, I would say you have this like there's a metatextual story that you take with you after you see a good movie. And this one, it wasn't necessarily a good movie. It still stuck with me. I had a meta story in my head. And I'm thinking about other aspects of the world that they gave me and the possibilities that unfortunately they didn't fully explore. So for that, I'll give it a four and a half. You know, I get, it stuck to me. You know, it wasn't a fully disposable entertainment experience. It stuck enough that, hey, I'll say it's worth a look. You know, if you just want to watch, you know, turn off your brain, watch some fun action, and some cheesy dialogue and some entertaining experiences. You know, it works in parts, but not as a whole. Wow, because in your overall thoughts, you were like, I watched it first time, I thought it was okay, and then, but now I think it's much better. <laughs> I thought you were going to give it a way higher score than that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I, I feel like for me, um, there was so many sort of superficial elements that turned me off uh, from understanding and really appreciating the content underneath, because I do think uh, as we talk about, there's a lot of interesting ideas here. Uh, and In the Right Hands could have been really interesting. Um, but it was it was difficult for me to get past that. I, I just, I ever loved that hyperkinetic style where everything's super shaky and zoomy and like you're cutting like crazy all the time. And every, and they're, I think they're using different shutter speeds because you've got the characters are like jittering along and, um, and, and the over-the-top performances and then the over-the-top society where you've got, you know, uh, nude uh, women everywhere. Not that I have a problem with that. It's just that it's, uh, it's, it's sort of, they did it in a bit of a sensationalistic way that felt a little bit dated nowadays in, in a sense. And, um, and so there was so much of that that got in the way of me 
uh, I really appreciate it. Did I give it a five? So I actually give it higher than you, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, so, but we're in the same ballpark. We're in the same ballpark. Um, yeah, glad we talked about it. Uh, and I'm glad we sort of delved into the ideas. Uh, but I don't know if I'll be watching it anytime soon again. <laughs> same. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, well, uh, there we go. So, uh, Futurosity, how can people get in touch with you if they want to debate your 4.5 WoW score? <laughs> well, you can reach out to me. I'm on Instagram at FuturosityVR. I love to chat. Say hello anytime. Uh, I'm also on there, Johnny Android. We also, there's also we have the Simulation Nation Instagram account. Uh, so uh, thank you, uh, everybody, for teleporting into this broadcast of Simulation Nation. Whether you're with us here in virtual reality, listening to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or watching uh, on YouTube. And remember to subscribe to our Instagram at the Simulation Nation, Twitter at SimNationVR, and our Discord server. Then join us um, next week for a uh, special edition called uh, Generative Art and the Future of AI. So we are having our uh, uh, returning guests uh, from Inkscape Studios, Matt Sinclair coming. He's been really delving into generative art, uh, which is essentially robot-assisted art or AI-assisted art, as well as AI-assisted writing. Mm. Really excited to bring this uh, to our stage here and have everyone uh, learn about the things that Matt is doing. So until then, great plugs. Bye, friends. <laughs>